Well, if you've already turned in your Bible to Mark chapter 10, uh, we will start at verse 17. If you've not, that's our passage for this morning. It's on page 846 of the Pew Bible in front of you. And if you're wondering, it is not in our sermon series guide. So if you're trying to find it there, you won't find it. But it does, however, follow the theme. We've been studying the servant king. And this passage has much to teach us about the king, Jesus. It also has a, something to share with us or teach us as we observe Advent. Uh, as Sam mentioned, this is the second Sunday of Advent. And we prepare to celebrate not only the birth of Jesus at Christmas, but his promised return. The day that he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and establish his kingdom forever. This passage can teach us about waiting in joyful hope for the return of the king. So before we look at this story in depth, let's think about what we know about these two characters in this dialogue. Jesus and this young man. First, Jesus. You may remember that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He has already shared with his disciples twice that he will suffer, be persecuted, die, and on the third day rise again. The second time he told them very plainly, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. You see, Jesus, the Lamb of God, knows he's being led to the slaughter, where he will be sacrificed, that is, crucified, for the sins of the world until he breathes his last. And after three days, he will rise. Imagine, just for a moment, what it felt like for him to be making his way to Jerusalem. And imagine how that informed his conversation with this man. Second, what do we know about this man? Well, first, I'd like to tell you that this story is also found in Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel. Matthew refers to him as young. He's a young man. He's wealthy. He had great possessions. Luke describes him as extremely rich. He's influential. Luke describes him also as a ruler. And it appears that he's faithful and sincere. When Jesus tells him the commandments he must keep, he answers, Teacher, I've kept all these from my youth. And yet, and yet these things are not enough. Though he has everything, it appears this man is nagged by one thing. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And that leads us to the main idea of this passage. The main idea is simply this. If you want to inherit eternal life, bring your question to Jesus, hear and obey his command, and follow him on the way. There is, however, far more to this story, this story of following Jesus, and we'll examine it together. First, we'll look at uh, the story of this man's encounter with Jesus. 
And then second, what that means to you and me. This man and Jesus. We're going to consider three things. This man's question, Jesus' reply, and the man's response. So what is his question? I've already mentioned it. Look at verse 17. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's amazing that this man cuts right to the point. I mean, how many things could you ask Jesus? But he asks the one thing whose answer matters forever. He goes right to the question that matters the most. And I think it commendable that this man who appears to have everything realizes he's missing one thing, assurance of eternal life. And now let's look at Jesus' reply. It's interesting that Jesus first asks a question. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Why does Jesus ask this question? Is it because he doesn't know why the man asked, calls him good? Or is it because he wants the man to know to whom he is speaking? You see, if the man refers to Jesus as good, and the only one who is good is God, then could it be that Jesus is God? That he's kneeling before God himself? You remember, this is the question Jesus asked the disciples. Who do people say that I am? And some said, well, Elijah, and others the prophet, or John the Baptist, or the prophet. But Jesus asked them, who do you say that I am? Friends, that's an important question for you and for me and for this man. Who is he really talking to? Of course, Peter answers, you're the Christ. And man, Jesus wants this man to know he's not speaking to a good teacher or a prophet or even an anointed one. He's speaking to the Son of God. And second, see verse 19. Jesus says, you know the commandments. He reminds the man of the commandments God gave Moses about how we're to relate to our parents, to our neighbors. And the man answers, all these I've kept from my youth. Why does Jesus start here? Why does Jesus start here? Could it be that he knows the man and he wants to illustrate that keeping the law, just observing the law is not enough. And then we get this beautiful aside. Look at verse 21. Jesus looks at the man. Now that doesn't mean just he sees him. He looks at him intently. He looks him in the eye. He gazes at him. And he loved him. The word for love here, agapeo, is the highest form of love in the New Testament, meaning love that characterizes God and of which God alone is worthy. Think about it. There must be something unique, maybe even commendable, about this man. Nowhere else in Mark's gospel does Mark record that Jesus looks at someone and says he loved him. And so Jesus looks at the man and loves him. And at verse 21, he says, you lack one thing. 
You see, keeping the law is not enough. Jesus intends to move this man beyond confidence in keeping the law to the ultimate purpose of his life, which is to know God. What is the one thing he lacks? A relationship with Jesus. And fourth, Jesus answers his question. The man asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And listen for these verbs in verse 21. Go. Go. Why? Because without faith, it's impossible to please God. And you must put your faith in motion. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to do what? Go. Go to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went, not knowing where he was going. Sell. Sell all that you have. Why? Because Jesus has already said, what, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Do you want to explore that question? Then look, go back and find Sam Ferguson's excellent sermon on the king's people's pain on November 20th. Give. Give to the poor. Why? Why not just bring Jesus a check for the proceeds? Just imagine this man giving his wealth to the homeless and the hungry, the lame, the poor, the sick, the widow, the orphan. What would it do in his heart? How would it enable him to see the way God sees, other-centered, and love the way God loves? sacrificially what would it do for him to let go of what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose and what is that look at verse 21 treasure in heaven I should add here that selling all of his possessions and giving to the poor does not grant this man eternal life it simply frees him to do the thing that does. And that's the next verb, follow. And come follow me, come follow me. In the same way that Jesus invited Simon, James, John, uh, Andrew, Nathaniel, Philip, Levi, the same way that he invited them to follow him, he's inviting this man. To come and be a part of and witness the story that's about to unfold in Jerusalem. Imagine what this young man would have experienced if he had followed Jesus to Jerusalem. Jesus offers this man exactly, exactly the thing he's asking for. Eternal life. Because what is eternal life? Do you know? And this is eternal life that they know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent, John 17, 3. Commit that verse to memory. This is eternal life that we know Jesus. You see, a relationship with Jesus is what this Jesus is offering this man. In exchange for this man's life, his relationships and his possessions, Jesus offers himself. So we've talked about the man's question, Jesus' reply, and the man's response. 
is now the next thing. Look at verse 22. Disheartened by the saying. Disheartened. That's not surprising, right? Anyone who'd given his life to keeping the commandments, working hard, amassing wealth, and becoming influential might feel disheartened. Think how easily you and I feel disheartened. But what did he do with feeling disheartened? Did he confess it to Jesus? Lord, this is a hard saying, but if you say so. Did he cry out like the man whose son had an unclean spirit? I believe, help my unbelief. Did he cry out like Bartimaeus, the blind man who you, we see at the end of this chapter? Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. No, he went away sorrowful. Why? First, he had great possessions which had captured his heart. The saying was too hard. The price for eternal life was too great. But second, and perhaps more importantly, he was not convicted of the one commandment he did not keep. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. What is the God this man put before Jesus? His wealth, his status, and ultimately himself. No, no, I, I want to be in control. I, I want to be in control of my life. Let's for a moment compare this man who was wealthy and righteous to two people, one wealthy and one righteous. Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector and wealthy. But unlike this man, he knew he was a sinner. When Jesus came to stay with Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus stood up and said to Jesus, Behold, Lord, if the half my goods I give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. The second, righteous, Saul. We know him as Paul. Paul was in the eyes of the Israelites righteous. He writes to the church in Philippi. Listen to this. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day the of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth, loss and worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. These two men, Zacchaeus and Paul, humbly acknowledged the kingship of Jesus, repented of their sin, and parted with their wealth and righteousness for the sake of knowing him. What have we learned? Jesus' reply always goes right to the heart. He's compassionate and loving, but direct and unequivocal. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Why? Because that's why he came. That's why he came. So that all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Who were born, not of blood, 
or of the will of man or the flesh, but of God. Let's consider what this means to you and me. You might be here this morning or maybe listening on the live stream and you think, well, eternal life, what, what must I do? Um, I mean, I've not lied about another, I've not stolen, I've not committed adultery or harmed someone. I give to charitable organizations, I serve in the community, I attend church regularly. I mean, surely that's good, right? That's good enough to inherit eternal life. And Jesus' answer is, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Why? Because he's the only one who could pay the penalty for our sin. He's the only one valuable enough to handle the value of you. He is eternal life. The question is, have you come to Jesus in humility and repentance and given your life to receive his? This morning, if that is your question, just like this man, I invite you to come forward afterward. Come down to the rail where we have people to pray with you. Come see me. Share, bring your question to Jesus. What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? You might be here this morning and you're assured of your salvation. But you have other questions. If you're in high school, you might ask, how do I deal with this overwhelming anxiety or my insecurity and fear? Will I get accepted in the school of my choice? If you're a young adult, you may think, will I succeed at work? Or I hate my job. Now what do I do? Why am I so lonely? What do I do with my singleness and my longing to be married? You might be married and think, boy, this is harder than I thought. I'm stuck. Now what do I do? Or you might wonder, why are we unable to start a family? If you're an adult, you may be wondering, what should I do with my child who's struggling? How do I deal with this financial hardship that's unexpected? How do I respond to this devastating diagnosis? And what do I do with this overwhelming loss and sorrow I feel? These questions and more are the reality of life this side of Eden. We feel them deeply and we understandably struggle with them mightily. What do we do? What do we do with those questions? Listen for the verbs. Bring. We humbly bring ourselves, our desires, our longings, our fears and insecurities, our questions, our possessions, and our relationships to Jesus. Acknowledge. We acknowledge him not as good teacher, but as the reigning and ruling king. Confess. We confess our great need. We just said the confession. I love this one from the Holy Eucharist. It sums it up for me. I've not loved you with my whole heart. I've not loved my neighbor as myself. I'm truly sorry and I humbly repent. I just need to admit when I've fallen short of the mark where I've looked for life or relief in other places, when I've put my possessions, my relationships, or my very life ahead of God.
And then receive. Receive his forgiveness and cleansing. Receive the love of God. God looks at you just as intently as he looked at this young man and loves you. And loves you. Yes, you. Calls you and me by name. Invites you into the only thing that will fulfill your deepest desire. That is your longing for something more. And that is the beauty, intimacy, love, power, and oneness of life in, with, and for him. Receive the king's invitation. Come. Come and follow me. And obey. We obey the word of God. Last week, if you remember, John Frederick preached on the transfiguration of Jesus. And he reminded us of these words spoken by the Father. You remember? This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. Are you and I cultivating the practice of listening for the word of God? Does that mean that you are to sell all your possessions and give to the poor and follow Jesus? Maybe. Maybe. After the man leaves, Jesus exclaims how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. I don't know how the Lord will answer your questions or your prayers, but I do know this. I can tell you one thing for sure. Whatever you hear from Jesus will be gracious and loving, but cut right to the heart of the matter. He loves you so much, he will directly address anything, any set of circumstances, anyone, and anything that becomes a first place thing in your heart. His severe mercy will address anything that keeps you not only from following him, but also being transformed into his likeness, for his purpose and his glory. Think about it. Anything that keeps you from not only following him. But being transformed into his likeness. For his purpose and his glory. Like the rich young man. Every day we have an opportunity. To kneel at Jesus feet. And call him not good teacher. But Lord and King. To bring our questions to him. And those must include, where's my heart divided, Lord? Where am I looking for life in ways apart from you? What, if anything, are you asking me to lay down? And listen for his answer and hear and obey his invitation. And every day we have an opportunity to be disheartened and walk away sorrowful. Or to trust him like a child. You know, I find it interesting that right before this story, Jesus told his disciples, let the little children come to me. Don't hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God, like what? A child shall not inherit it. That is what Jesus is after, the heart. One that opens our arms wide in trust of him. What's at stake? I conclude with this question. What is at stake? 
What is at stake each day we choose to humble ourselves before the king and pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as on earth as it is in heaven. Listen again to the words we heard from the prophet Isaiah earlier. The prophecy of Isaiah was written in about the 8th century B.C. And the theme throughout the book of Isaiah is the coming king. And I'd like you to listen again to these words in terms of the past, present, and future. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong. Fear not. Behold, your God will come with a vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Think about it just for a moment. When this rich young man was kneeling at the feet of Jesus, he, this prophecy was being fulfilled. The eyes of the blind opened. Jesus healed a blind man at Bethsaida. The ears of the deaf unstopped. Jesus healed a deaf man at the Decapolis. The lame shall leap like a deer. Jesus had healed a paralytic in Capernaum. Waters break forth in the wilderness. Jesus told the woman of Samaria, whoever drinks of this water will never be thirsty again. The water I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. If this man had get the eyes to see, he would have seen he was kneeling before the king and this prophecy was being fulfilled. Today, Jesus the king is seated at the right hand of the father where he reigns and rules and this prophecy is being fulfilled. How? Sam often reminds us God works by his spirit through his word amid his people for his glory. He's at work now to all who are thirsty. Come, drink of the, what I have to offer. And this prophecy will be fulfilled when Jesus returns again. Listen to these words from Isaiah. And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Friends, this Advent season, that's our hope. Our hope is the day that Jesus returns and we are on the highway to Zion, praising him with singing in everlasting joy. Let God the Father, through the Holy Spirit, use this story to set our hearts on living with and through and for Jesus, the servant king, both now and forever. Pray with me. God, it's only by your grace that you give us the eyes to see with the eyes of the heart 
to recognize you as the reigning and ruling king and to put our hope in the God of hope who promises to return and to establish his kingdom forever. Lord, during this season, I pray, we pray, that we have an encounter with you that leaves us changed forever. That we might be a people set apart for your purpose and glory. We ask in your holy name. Amen. Please stand and join us. Thank you.